Appalachia. Nobody truly knows where the word came from, but it seems that most folks have their own idea of what it is. Everything from run-down mobile homes full of meth heads to beautiful mountaintop views. The Appalachian Mountains are the oldest mountains in the world and once stood over 30,000 feet into the air. They span the eastern North America from Canada through 14 states all the way to Louisiana. Hello, I'm Larry Bentley. I was born and raised in these very mountains. I, for one, know that they're a source of unending tales and adventure. I also know that the views of an Appalachian as to what happens outside these mountains is a bit different than one might think. Join me as uh, we take a journey through these old Appalachian mountains and beyond. I think you'll be surprised at how it goes. Welcome to Season 3 of Appalachian Murder, Mystery, and Legend. Hello, my good friends. I'm so glad you stopped by today, and thank you so much for listening. Now, I don't know how many of you folks have ever heard of the Sovereign Citizen Movement. It ain't really nothing new. It's been around for many a year. It just seems like it caught new life here once again lately. And if you watch any of them cop shows like the lovely and gracious Mrs. Bentley and I do, you'll occasionally see a sovereign individual pepper sprayed, tased, or maybe even wrestled into a pair of cuffs and hauled off to the pokey just like the rest of us do when we break the law. And to beat it all, most of the time the whole mess started out as some kind of small traffic violation. It could have ended with a ticket, but it ended with a Sears catalog-sized stack of charges. Now, as much as I like the idea of doing from our south without any of the government's, uh, what you might call, help, the opportunity to become a sovereign individual pretty much disappeared with the Wilson administration over a hundred years ago. And I don't care how much CPR it gets, I don't think at this point it's going to be able to rise from the dead. But as we all know, that don't stop folks from trying all to be damned to make it work anyway. And some, though it's very few, are willing to bust a cap or a thousand to defend what they believe is right. Now, I can't say this much. It just don't get much more American than that, I guess, does it? So, come on in, take your shoes off, and set a spell while I tell you about a family that took sovereignty, ran it through the wall, and right out into the road. Literally. Our first set of characters today consists of the Bigsby family who lived in Warren, New Hampshire. There, the old man Arthur Bixby was known to completely detest the laws of the nation, state, county, and town. Didn't look like he cared too much about the do-unto-others thing either, unless it was do-unto-others when it was good for him. It was said by folks that knew him that he was a cogity old coot who'd never been wrong before in his life, at least the way he saw it. Apparently, he was right even after being jailed for failure to pay a $850 judgment three years after losing a lawsuit filed against him. That one was over a fence line that was suddenly disputed by old man Arthur, of course, who decided that his true property line was a few feet further into somebody else's land than he thought it was supposed to be. So being all sovereigned up, 
He went out, tore down the fence that had been there since way before he was even born, and installed a brand new one where he thought it was supposed to be and where he thought it needed to be. And it ended up costing him $850 and some time in jail, too. But in his mind, he was still right. The blamed government just didn't see his brilliance and was flat-foot clogging all over his rights. The way the whole family acted after that made the judge in the case arrange himself a whole full-time security detail just in case they tried to carry out any of the bushel of threats that they handed out to folks like buttered corn at the county fair. Just about everybody that was within their general area got a whole earful of what most folks thought that they were just about nutball enough to carry out. But Rita Bixby, Arthur's wife, was just about as much a whack-a-doodle as he was. She reported, well, reportedly, I guess, had a right smart history of filing meaningless lawsuits in New Hampshire courts. Now, here's where I had to call BS. Either you don't acknowledge the law as a governing body, which means you don't acknowledge that it has the right to settle lawsuits, or you acknowledge that the whole thing, which means that you are governed by it. Either one, you gotta you gotta pick one and stick with it. You can't be on both sides. It seems like they're doing the sovereign straddle to me. Only acknowledge the law when it was to their advantage. Rest of the time, it could take a long walk off a short boat dock. So, one of Rita's lawsuits tried to take a title of the land that belonged to the Bigsby's neighbors. The other ones with the fence problem. The court dismissed that suit and pretty much laughed Rita completely out of town. But Rita Bixby wasn't about to stop. She waited for the neighbor to leave. I'm not really sure where he went, but apparently they were gone long enough for Rita to go over and put together what's known as a sheriff's sale of all their property. Now, a sheriff's sale was supposed to be done by the sheriff and the sheriff's department and is done on foreclosed properties. I'm not sure what exactly the circumstances were on the property, but I can tell you that Rita wasn't a sheriff and not one of his deputies either. The sheriff caught wind of that and went over and put an immediate stop to it, despite all the threats that came out of it. Now, the Bixby still weren't done. They tried to bypass all legal processes by filing claims and suits in unofficial common law courts, of course, claiming that they were sovereign citizens and that gave them the right to pursue legal action in whatever manner they pleased. Now, what I can figure uh, by common court was getting a bunch of other sovereigns together and making their legal decisions based on what's happened in the past instead of what laws were on the books, like that would be legal and binding anywhere, I suppose. In New Hampshire, Stephen Bigsby, their son, was convicted of drunk driving, I'm doing it without a license, back in 1992. In 1994, arrest warrant was issued when he missed parole check-in and failed to pay his fines. He'd left New Hampshire bound for Abbeville, South Carolina. New Hampshire did learn where he was, but decided to leave him a bee because the charge against him just it wasn't worth the time and effort to go fighting and drag him back. So he arrived in Abbeville in the mid-1990s. Didn't take his parents along to finally wear out their welcome in New Hampshire as well, and they rolled into Abbeville in 2000. They all moved into a 
little house located on 4 Union Church Road. Now, Stephen lived in an apartment near there. He didn't actually live in the house with them, but they all spent a lot of time in that house. Now, that was near the junction of South Carolina Highway 72, Union Church Road, and Horton Drive in West Abbeville. The parcel of land was surrounded by new Bigsby residents was unbeknownst to them when they moved in subject to a 1960 easement granted by the previous owner named Haskell Johnson to the state of South Carolina. That easement allowed for the South Carolina Department of Transportation to expand its right-of-way on the portion of the property adjoining Highway 72 if and whenever it decided to widen the highway in the future. And when the 1960 easement was granted, it was the I guess you'd call the prerogative of the South Carolina Department of Transportation as to whether or not it would go down to the local courthouse and record the deed or record it in the deed book under the South Carolina law at the time it didn't have to and in this case it didn't and in fact it most of the time it didn't but now you can imagine what's fixing to happen and I thought I thought I could too, and for the most part, we're both thinking in the right direction, but what do you get a load of what happened and how ridiculously far it went? But So about the time that the Bigsby family were united in Abbeville, the state of South Carolina started widening the Highway 72 from Georgia Line to East Abbeville. And as luck would have it, the Bigsby's lived in the west end of Abbeville, and that meant that everybody along South Carolina 72 was going to have to give a little bit in order to widen the highway. Now, the Bigsby's share was 10 square feet. Folks, that's about the size of a four-foot-long standard-width sidewalk. So South Carolina Department of Transportation determined sometime around the late 2003 that it would sure enough need to use that 10 square feet easement on the edge of the Bigsby's property. And in order for them to get a wider, you know, a wider and safer US-72 to fit. Now, when the Bigsby family was told that they was going to have to give it up, then um, you know, meaning that 10 square feet, it went about as well as throwing holy water all over a family of vampires and then charging at them with a big fiery cross. They were mad as a wet hornet by what they was, uh, you know, seen as unconstitutional theft of their property by the South Carolina Department of Transportation. And the Bixby started up their big appeals campaign by sending their appeals to about every state official they could find arguing that the easement in question had took, been took from him illegally. Of course, some of the appeals quoted references from the New Hampshire State Constitution, including the New Hampshire State motto, which is live free or die. And the Bixby's repeatedly stated that well, that was exactly what they intended to do, die for the beliefs. Of course, all of that didn't arrive in the folks making the decisions mailboxes until it was way too late. In the meantime, surveyors would show up, stake out the easement, only to come back and look at what they was doing and find the stakes laying in the middle of US-72. And then they'd have to start all over and do it again and again and again. On November 4th, 2003, Rita wrote a letter or sent an email to a friend telling everybody that if anything was done on their property line, there would be two shotguns there, and they weren't there just for show. 
on Thursday, Thursday, December 4th, 2003, South Carolina Department of Transportation officials brought a copy of the easement to the Bigsby home to maybe try to talk a little bit of peace. Now, the Bigsby's wasn't having none of it, so the Department of Transportation finally just informed the Bigsby's that they would act on the easement and take the land, but that the Bigsby's had the option to buy additional footage on the other side of the property for the nominal consideration of $1. Now, if you thought the Bigsby's were mad already, well, this just poured salt all over the wound. At least, that's how they saw it. Rita and Arthur wrote letters to a whole passel of state officials and used Patrick Henry's quote, give me liberty or give me death, and they included John Stark's live free or die, death is not the worst evil, right along with it. Now, they ended with, we the undersigned echo these sentiments. Now, folks, this ain't going to get any better. Stick around. You're listening to Appalachian Murder, Mystery, or Legend with Larry Bentley. On Friday, December 5th, 2003, officials with the South Carolina Department of Transportation came back to stake out the easement again. The Bigsby's had posted sign on the property prohibiting trespassing by government agents and all others. Yes, I said government because that's how the Bigsby spelled it. That day, there was another meeting between Rita, Stephen, and Arthur Bigsby and the South Carolina Department of of the transportation officials, Drew McCaffrey, Michael Hanna, Dale Williams, all to address the Bigsby's concerns. Mr. McCaffrey said that he offered to show them plans, detailing who owned the right-of-way, but Rita Bigsby said the plans were all lies. I wonder if she could spell lies any better than she could government. Arthur Bigsby, at one point, ran out, well, I guess as fast as a 79-year-old man could run, pulled up the stakes again and threw them out in the middle of Highway 72. Now, early on December 8, 2003, which is my little brother's birthday, he's had enough things happen on his birthday for to last him a lifetime, but if you look up December 8th, <laughs> well, you'll know what I'm talking about. A highway worker contacted police accusing Arthur and Stephen Bixby of making threatening statements and again disrupting the laying out of the survey stakes along Highway 72. Abbeville County Sheriff's Deputy Sergeant Danny Boy Wilson responded to the complaint arriving at the Bixby's home around 9.15 that morning. Now he walked up to the front of the Bixby's home to knock on the door only to be shot by Stephen Bixby at point-blank range with a 7mm Magnum rifle. At that point, Stephen Bixby dragged the fallen deputy into the house and used the deputy's own handcuffs to cuff his hands behind his back, saying that he'd made a citizen's arrest of Deputy Wilson for trespassing and read him his Miranda rights. It's, it was amazing to me, folks. After being shot with a 7mm Magnum, Deputy Wilson was still alive, much less able to hear any Miranda warning. Now, Deputy Wilson was then held hostage for the next 14 hours. He'd been shot underneath his armpit, which would have been a horrible wound that needed immediate medical attention if there was any chance for him to make it to start with. After making several attempts to contact Deputy Wilson, dispatch sent State Constable Donnie Oates out to see what was going on over at the Bigsby place. Now, within minutes, Constable Oates was fatally wounded 
for showing up too. Donnie Oots had just returned from work after having heart bypass surgery and was shot right through his heart. That's just awful, folks. At this point, the South Carolina Department of Probation and Parole and Pardon Services office in Abbeville received a phone call saying that an officer had been shot. Now, all probation agents in the state of South Carolina are fully certified law enforcement officers with the same training and arrest powers as all other certified law officers. Now, probation agent Philip Sears and agent in charge Ed Strickland responded immediately to the scene not knowing what in the world they were fixing fine. As first responders to the Bigsby house, they canvassed the property and quickly located the body of Constable Oates laying in the front yard. The agents called for backup and established a perimeter around the residence before other law enforcement officers rolled up. Now, in the meantime, Rita Bigsby from the Abbeville Arms apartment rented by Stephen phoned the South Carolina Attorney General's office, leaving a nice message with the, sec- with the secretary. It said, this is Rita Bigsby, and I live at 4 Union Church Road. I've talked to you before. And they have, the state has decided that they were going to come in and take our property. My husband and son are there, and there is a shootout going on because they're not going to take our land. No one has approached us and asked us if we want to negotiate anything. They just simply came onto our land and started taking it, and there's a shootout there. Narita then officially took the entire apartment complex and its surroundings hostage, threatening to randomly shoot bystanders if police harmed either her husband or her son. At the apartment, Rita had her son Dennis with her. Now, throughout the late morning and into the afternoon, members of the various law enforcement agencies and Abbeville residents who had tried to be friends with the Bigsby's attempted to negotiate with the family with absolutely no avail. Now, the SWAT unit came from Columbia by helicopter followed by a South Carolina Law Enforcement Division armored vehicle. At one point, nearly 200 law enforcement agents surrounded the Bigsby residence. A constant barrage of gunfire of about a thousand rounds of ammunition in five minutes emanated from the small house. Thornton attempts by the police to rescue Officer Wilson or capture the residence. So the gunfire was so heavy that the police had to be <clears throat> resupplied several times with ammunition. There are estimates that the number of rounds fired was in the tens of thousands. According to the SLED, Chief Robert Stewart, the level of gunfire from the Bigsby's was worse than anything he had encountered in his 30-year law enforcement career. Now, by late afternoon, SWAT officers could finally negotiate <clears throat> Rita Bigsby to surrender. Uh, though she refused to assist in negotiations with Arthur and Stephen. Now, upon searching Stephen's apartment and Rita's vehicle, authorities found a stockpile of high-powered firearms and a large quantity of what was described as anti-government literature. Now, and that reminds me, I don't know how many flight lifts I'm on now for researching this thing, but <laughs> uh, so be it. But around 7.15 p.m., two hours after Rita's surrender, police breached the Bigsby's front door with a 10-foot steel battering ram attached to an armored vehicle, breaking a propane line and starting a fire, which several officials managed to put out before there was another Waco. A surveillance robot armed with a tear gas and five 
times concentrated pepper spray was rolled into the house, but it was unable to enter due to a big pile of debris blocking the front door. The robot was able to get video of Danny Boy Wilson's handcuffed body laying on the pool of blood. It, in an attempt to recover Deputy Wilson's body, a SWAT unit stormed the house. Surprised by their earlier propane flash fire, the Bigsby's were caught off guard for a second as they ceased firing long enough for the officers to drag the deputy's body from the house and recover it. By 10 o'clock that evening, after hours of constant firing from both sides releasing over 20 canisters of tear gas and pepper spray into the nearly destroyed Bigsby home, Steve Bigsby surrendered to police. About an hour later, a critically wounded Arthur Bigsby also surrendered with enough holes in him to make him look like a good piece of Swiss cheese and was promptly flown to the Greenville, South Carolina hospital where, believe it or not, he fully recovered. I guess they were merely flesh wounds. Once they entered the house for the first time, officers found nine firearms, including Deputy Wilson's and an extensive library of legal text and articles relating to the militia uprisings. Now, they also found several different wills made out by the Bixby's and a file folder full of suicide notes. Now, on December 9, 2003, Stephen and Rita Bixby were dragged into and arraigned in an Abbeville courtroom on various charges related to the deaths of Deputy Wilson and Constable Oates. Now, Stephen was charged with two counts of murder and one count of criminal conspiracy, while Rita was charged with accessory before the fact of murder, criminal conspiracy, and misprison of a felon, whatever that means. And I guess that means holding somebody hostage. At arraignment, Stephen said he was acting in self-defense and, of course, cited the New Hampshire motto, parts of the Constitution of New Hampshire, and some federal law. He said, I love this country. I just can't stand the bastards that live in it. Now, Arthur Bixby was later arraigned and charges on charges similar to those against Stephen and prosecutors originally planned to seek the death penalty for all three Bixby's but on August 23rd 2006 Judge Alexander McCauley ruled that the death penalty was not an option in Rita's case a ruling that prosecutors appealed to have overturned by the South Carolina Supreme Court unfortunately it failed and were overruled there too uh, all three Bixby's were initially held in Abbeville County Jail awaiting trial. Now, for a brief period in 2005, Steve Bixby was moved to other jails a couple of times because he thought that the government was eavesdropping on his meetings with his attorneys. Now, trial dates were pushed back several times from their original schedules. One reason was that the, of the sudden death of Circuit Judge Mark Westbrook in September 2005 in a traffic accident. Another reason was the contest between the defense and prosecution over both the venue of the trial and the county from which the jury pool would be selected. In early 2006, Judge McCauley agreed that with Stephen Bixby's defense that it would be nearly impossible to seat a truly impartial jury of Abbeville County citizens. I'd say they were probably still picking up brass and bullets out of the yard back then at the time the trial was getting ready to kick off. So. In July 2006, Judge McCauley ruled that potential juries would come from Chesterfield County. Now, at Stephen Bigsby's trial, testimony by forensic pathologist Dr. Brett Woodard, who performed the autopsy on the slain officers, gave the 
jury physical descriptions of the wounds sustained by Deputy Wilson and Constable Oates. Now, jurors also viewed the two officers' dried but still blood-stained shirts, along with other personal effects that they carried that day. On February 19, 2007, a Chesterfield County jury found Stephen Bigsby guilty on 17 counts, including both murders and several lesser charges of kidnapping and conspiracy. On February 21, 2007, this same jury recommended that Stephen Bigsby receive two death sentences for the murders and 125 years in prison for the lesser charges. Now, Mr. Bigsby was scheduled to be executed on April 22, 2007, but the appeals process hadn't been exhausted yet. On August 16, 2010, the South Carolina Supreme Court affirmed the conviction of Stephen Bixby and the death sentence as well. Now, Steve Bixby is currently in South Carolina's death row at the Lieber Correctional Institution in Ridgeville, sitting there looking out the window and the fence post. They're going to go out and take him out and tie him to pretty soon and shoot him. That's right. Since South Carolina can can't get the drugs they need to put him to sleep, they brought back electrocution firing squad. So how's that for justice? So on August 10th, like I said, 2010, the Supreme Court cleared the way for his execution. So he's on the way. Yeah, I believe that when I see it. But on August 26, 2007, Rita Bixby was found guilty in Abbeville County Court of General Sessions. Dr. Alexander, or Dr. Judge Alexander McCauley presided over the week-long trial. Rita was found guilty by a jury of one count of conspiracy to commit murder, one count of accessory before the fact in the murder of Danny Wilson, and one count of the same in the murder of Donnie Oates. Now, Judge McCauley sentenced Rita Bigsby to five years in custody of the Department of Corrections for the charge of conspiracy to commit murder. He sentenced her to life without parole for each accessory conviction. She got the big L-wop. So Rita Bigsby made no statement to the court. She asked her attorney to advise Judge McCauley that she wasn't guilty of these charges. Folks, she was 75 years old at the time. And because Arthur Bigsby had conveniently developed dementia, he wasn't capable of standing trial. So in July 2008, <clears throat> prosecutors dropped the murder charges and requested the probate court commit him to a mental facility at their pleasure, which they promptly did. At their pleasure means as long as they feel like he needs to be there. And I expect they feel like he needs to be there until he drops over. So on February 22, 2008, South Carolina State Transportation officials renamed a stretch of Highway 72 in Abbeville County for Abbeville County Deputy Sheriff Danny Wilson and Abbeville County Magistrate's Constable Donnie Oates. Now, in September 2011, believe it or not, the Bigsby parents died of natural causes a week apart. On the 5th, Arthur dropped over at the age of 82, and on the 12th, Rita died of cancer at the Graham Correctional Institution, and she was 79. Folks, there's a time to fight, and there's a time for understanding, and only an individual knows where their line is. And I can say this much. In my humble Appalachian opinion, 10 square feet of land wasn't worth anywhere near what both sides paid in this case. I hope you got something out of our story today. It's another one that needed telling. If you did, please rate and review the podcast, and don't forget to subscribe, please, or 
follow. You know, I guess some of them say follow just to get notified of new episodes. Come on over to our Facebook group, Appalachian Murder Mystery and Legend Podcast, where we can talk about anything Appalachian or anything else you want to talk about. I'll be back real soon with another Appalachian Murder Mystery or Legend, and I will see you then.